Well, good morning. Turn to somebody next to you and say, I'm glad you're here. Would you do that right now? Because I'm glad that you're here. Rainy days and rainy Sundays always get me down, but I'm up because you're here. And I appreciate you being here. I want to welcome those who are watching us online, those who are watching by TV, those at our other campuses. We are really thrilled that you're here. Today is a, is a tough day for me from the beginning of this message because I'm going to share something with you that's probably one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me when I was a junior in high school. As a matter of fact, I've never had the courage to share this publicly. And, uh, it, it, and I'm, not, I'm not joking. It's, 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 it's hard for me to do this. I, I'm still ashamed to admit. As a matter of fact, what I'm about to tell you, I never even told my parents. My mom and dad died and never even knew that this happened. In fact, I've never, to my knowledge, ever told any of my family this except Teresa. Now, when you find out what I did, some of you are going to laugh, okay? You're going to say, that's it? Because it has nothing to do with drugs or alcohol or jail or sex or posing nude for a magazine. It's nothing like that. But it was a big thing to me. It was a big thing then, and it's a big thing to me now. I don't mean to brag. I don't mean it that way. I don't want to set the story up. I, I was always a straight-A student. I, I graduated very high in my class. Uh, I graduated, graduated with honors from college. I uh, had almost a perfect uh, uh, grade point average in seminary. And I, I wasn't the smartest kid in class, but, I, but nobody ever outworked me. I've always had a great work ethic, and I've always worked hard, and I've always you know, tried to do my very best. And quite frankly, I really took a lot of pride in the fact that, that everything came easy for me. Subjects were just not hard for me. And, and I just took pride that, I mean, I was one of those kids, I never brought homework home. I always did my homework at school. I could just do it. And, um, you know, almost every subject I took, it was just a snap from kindergarten until the 11th grade. And then I hit this brick wall called chemistry. Anybody ever hit a brick wall called chemistry? All right. I hit a brick wall called chemistry. Now, in chemistry, you have to learn to balance chemical equations. And frankly, I never got the hang of it. I never just never could get it. I don't know why. I just couldn't do it. And one reason I look forward to heaven is because I know from reading God's Word, there's no chemistry in heaven. So I'm excited about that. Well, we were taking an exam about three weeks before our final exam. And my chemistry teacher, Mrs. Hall, had promised everyone if you made a B on this exam, you would be exempt from the final exam. Well, the problem was the exam was nothing but balancing chemical equations. Now, for 11 grades, I had never cheated on a test. One reason was I never had to cheat. I didn't have to. It all came easy to me. But I got about two equations into this exam, and I'll be honest with you, I was as confused as a goat on AstroTurf. <laughs> Think about that one for just a little bit. Those equations, I'm not, they look like Russian to me. They look like hieroglyphics. I mean, I was absolutely confused. Now, let me tell you what's something I learned that day. There are smart cheaters and there are dumb cheaters, okay? Now, I can tell by looking at some of you, some of you are smiling like, I was a smart cheater, okay? I wasn't. I was a dumb cheater. As a matter of fact, when I tell you what happened, you're going to realize I'm probably the dumbest cheater who ever lived. And the reason was I didn't have any practice. I just never cheated. But, but what happened was I panicked. 
And, and, and I had my chemistry book. This was back in the day. Some of you remember when you're, you're old enough. Back in the day that we had desks and you had slots underneath. You'd put your books under your desk. So I had all my, you know, my books and stuff under the desk. Well, I, you know, I, I didn't know what else to do. I pulled my chemistry book halfway out from my desk and opened it up. And I started turning the pages trying to find the answer to the questions. I got so engrossed in that. I never saw Mrs. Hall come storming by my desk. She snatched up my paper. She looked at me and she said, see me after class. All my classmates are now staring at me, right? And most of them had this look like, how dumb can you be? I mean, how stupid can you be? Well, we finished the exam or they finished the exam and everybody walked out of the room and I'm still sitting there with Ms. Hall at the desk. And she just kind of did this. And I know now what it feels like to walk to your own hanging. And I walked up to the desk, and I'm telling you, I felt this tall. Ms. Hall, you talk about dressing somebody down. I mean, she dressed me down. She told me how disappointed she was in me, she, she, how ashamed she was of my actions. And she says, you will be taking the final exam. And she said, you ought to go home and really think through what you have done. Now, she was merciful. I took the final exam, and I did get the only C that I ever made in school. But the story didn't end there, because I was just a junior. So for my whole senior year, her class where she taught was right next to a class that I had to take. And every day, I'd see Mrs. Hall. And I'll be honest, I, I would either avoid her or, or I, I would look away because, you know, it's one thing to do wrong and be found out later. That's one thing. It's another thing to be caught red-handed. And I mean, I was caught red-handed. Now, I'll tell you that story because it leads into the final message of the series that we've been in for the last several weeks. And if you're a guest of ours for the first time or you're just joining us for the first time, we've been in a series that we've been calling Balanced. And, and, and the whole point of the series is that there ought to be a balance both in the church and in individual believers between grace and truth. We ought to be full of grace, but we also ought to be full of truth. As matter, you say, where do you get this idea? Well, there was a disciple by the name of John. He spent three years with Jesus. And after Jesus had died and rose and went back to heaven, he sat down and wrote a biography called John. It was a biography of Jesus. And he was kind of writing out his observations of what he found out about Jesus and what he knew about Jesus, having spent three years of his life with him. And, and he said this about Jesus. He said that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. John said there was something about Jesus that just drew people to Jesus. People that were unlike Jesus, like Jesus. And one of the reasons why he had this unique ability to have a handful of grace on the one hand and a handful of truth on the other hand. Now, last week or week before last, we looked at a situation where Jesus was all grace. And then last week, we looked at a situation where Jesus was all truth. So what we're going to do today is we're going to conclude this series by looking at something that happened in the life of Jesus that perfectly shows us the balance that Jesus always kept between grace and truth. So if you brought a copy of God's Word or you want to look on, on a, a smartphone or iPad, whatever you might have, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're in the New Testament. I want you to turn to John chapter 8. 
Now, here's the story. Here's what we're going to read. This is a story of a woman who had been literally caught red-handed. She was literally caught in the act. Matter of fact, I didn't know this. There's a legal term for being caught doing something red-handed. It's, it's in Latin, and, and it's known as in flagrante delicto. In Latin, it means in blazing offense. And what that term means is, it means that you're a criminal that's been actually caught in the act of committing a crime. Now, this woman, and this is strange, but it just happened. This woman had literally been caught in the act of adultery. I don't mean caught walking into the hotel room or walking out of the hotel room. She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, this woman was ashamed and she was afraid. She was ashamed because she'd been caught in the act of having relations with a man she was not married to. She was afraid because of the penalty for such an act. And you're going to see in a moment, the penalty for that was death. Now, you may be looking in your Bible and you may say, wait a minute, I've got a little note here that says this is not found in some of the oldest manuscripts, this, this story, and it's not. But many Bible scholars, and I'm one of them, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I believe what they believe, many biblical scholars believe this story belongs in the Bible for two reasons. Number one, it rings true to what we know about Jesus, and number two, it totally perfectly fits the context of what happens before the story and then after the story. Here's the point. As we look at this story, regardless of where you might be right now, spiritually or morally, you are in this story. Every one of us is in this story. Let me give you an example. If you're kind of more of a truthy person than a gracey person, and you think that sin and, 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 and when people do wrong, if you think we ought to deal with it in a tough way, well, there's something for you to learn. If, on the other hand, you're kind of more of a gracey person, right? You're kind of more into the grace and the mercy. And you think that sin ought to be dealt with not in a tough way. Sin ought to be dealt with in a tender way. Then there's something for you to learn. Now, we're all in this story, and we all can learn a life-changing lesson from this story. Because here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn today how we should see others the way God sees us. Let me just stop right there. It would be amazing to you how your perspective on a lot of people would change if you would start seeing people the way God sees people. If you'd quit seeing people the way you think you ought to see people and start seeing people the way God sees people. What you're going to see in this story, you're going to see grace and truth in perfect harmony, okay? So what we're really gonna do today is we're gonna take everything we've learned the last three weeks and we're gonna summarize it in this one message, all right? First of all, here's what we see. With truth, we see the reality of sin. When you look at sin through the eyes of truth, you see the reality of sin. Now, this is where the story takes place. We're in John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again, that is Jesus, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, this story takes place in a temple, which back in that day was their church. It actually took place in the outer court of the temple where everybody could gather. Now, the, 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 the outer court of the temple, that was a real popular place that people liked to go to for Bible study. So, so, so very, uh, often uh, in the morning, people would, would take off from work or before they would go to work, they would gather there in the outer court and they didn't know who would be teaching. It could be this rabbi or that rabbi. Today, it happened to be Jesus. It was a very popular place for rabbis and biblical scholars to teach the Bible. Well, on this particular morning, Jesus is teaching from God's Word. He's teaching from the Old Testament. They're gathered around, and he's right in mid 
sermon. Now, you're about to witness something that happened in a church service that, as far as I know, never happened before. And as far as I know, it has never happened again. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, get the picture. It's kind of like I'm up here preaching, and all of a sudden, somebody drags a woman right down the aisle of our church, all right? So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone, to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So, so here, here Jesus is teaching, and he's interrupted a bunch of religious lawyers and Pharisees, drag this woman across the pavement, make this a kangaroo court. They throw her at the feet of Jesus, and they accuse her of committing a felony, not a misdemeanor. She is committing a felony against Jewish law. Now, who were the Pharisees, and who were these lawyers? They were the Jewish Gestapo. Their, their, their job was to find out anybody they thought that might be breaking the law, and they were to bring them to justice. Now, let me tell you about the Pharisees, okay? They were experts at spitting truth and killing grace. Spitting truth, but killing grace. And here's the problem. Their case was airtight. I mean, open and shut. She has been caught in the act. They have pictures on their cell phone. They have pasted it on Facebook. She is guilty. Now, before we start judging this woman, which is what they wanted to do, I just wanted to ask you a question, and I know the answer. Can we all just admit that we've all been caught in a bad situation at some time in our lives? I told you about one that I was caught in. All of us have been caught at some time or another in a bad situation. In fact, I was reading the other day, there was a mother who was trying to teach her young son to, about how to tell time, but she wanted him to learn to do it without looking at, at a digital clock. She wanted him to tell time the real way. So for days, she had this big clock put in the kitchen, and she kept talking about the little hand and the big hand, the little hand and the big hand. And, and so she, you know, she, she thought, okay, I think, I think he knows how to do it now. I think she's got it down. So she, she would walk him into the kitchen where they had this clock with hands on it, and she'd say, okay, what's the little hand on? What's the big hand on? She thought she had it. Well, one day, she was in the next room, and Johnny was in the kitchen, so she thought, I'll just test Johnny. So she yelled out. She said, Johnny, what's the little hand on? He said, a chocolate chip cookie. Now, this was a woman who had been caught with her hand in an adulterous cookie jar. Okay, she was caught. Now, I know what you're asking, and it's a great question, because it, I know we're begging a question. So what were a bunch of lawyers and Pharisees doing in somebody's bedroom to begin with, okay? Uh, and by the way, that's another sermon, all right? But the point is, this woman had been caught in adultery. No question about it. Oh, by the way, before we go any further, the story is really not about the woman. She's just a pawn in a chess game. The real target in the story is not the woman. Who do you think the real target is? Yes, Jesus. They're not after the woman. They couldn't care less about her. The real target is Jesus. They were not after her. They were after him. We know that from verse 6. They were saying this, testing him, not her, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. In other words, this was a gotcha question. This was a trap. Okay, Jesus, we have caught this woman in adultery. You know what the law says. The law says she ought to die. What say you? 
Now they think once again, they've got Jesus cornered. They've got Jesus where it doesn't matter which way you go, we have you. Because if he forgives the woman, then he's breaking the law of Moses because it was plain from Jewish law, this woman should be stoned. If he condemned the woman and said, yep, she ought to be stoned, well, then you're breaking the law of the Romans. You're breaking governmental law. Because the Romans said nobody can carry out any kind of, of, of capital punishment except us. Only we can execute criminals. That's why the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. Romans crucified Jesus. Why? Because in Roman law, you couldn't take the law into your own hands. Somebody else had to do it. So they think they've got Jesus caught. Okay, if you forgive her, you're going to say, don't pay any attention to the law of Moses. It doesn't count. If you don't forgive her, you're going to say, hey, don't, if you do condemn her, you're going to say, don't pay any attention to the Roman law. We'll take the law into our own hands. Now, there were actually three things at stake right now. This is how bad this was for Jesus. At least it looked like it was really bad for Jesus because there were three things at stake. The law is very plain. The law of Moses is at stake because the law is very plain. It doesn't miss words. The penalty for adultery is death. So the law of Moses is at stake. Well, the life of the woman is at stake because if the law is going to be carried out the way the law is supposed to be carried out, this woman is going to die. But the love of Jesus is also at stake because if Jesus just goes ahead and goes along with everybody else and condemns this woman, People are going to say, see there, you're just another Pharisee. You're just another legalist, and you'll no longer be known as the friend of sinners. So what in the world is Jesus going to do? It, you know, the reason I love these stories is because when you first read them, until you really understand them, every time you read them, you go, well, there's no way out. They've got him. He's dead. Either way he goes, it's a dead-end street. So what does Jesus do? Well, I would have never thought about this. Look what he does. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now that raises a question in your mind, I know. So what, why did he stoop, and what is he writing? Easy answer. <laughs> we don't know. I don't know why he stooped down. And I don't know what he was writing. As a matter of fact, here's an interesting little fact for you. Did you know this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus is ever recorded as having written down anything? We don't ever read about Jesus signing a document. We don't ever, write, uh, we don't, we don't ever read about Jesus writing a letter. We don't ever read, read about Jesus signing his name. Well, this is the only time we ever read anywhere in Scripture that Jesus wrote anything, okay? So anybody's guess, including mine, would be pure speculation. I want to get that out front, okay? It would be pure speculation. However... Since it's not against the law to speculate, and since I am the pastor, I'm going to speculate. Okay? This is just my guess. I think Jesus may have stooped down in the sand, and I think he may have written three words. I think he may have written down grace and truth. Just a thought. Because as they were building their case against him, Jesus is building his case against them. And he turns the tables, which he was great at doing, because here's what he does. They're expecting him to pass judgment on the woman, right? He says, okay, you want me to pass judgment? Glad to do so. Glad to accommodate what you want me to do. However, I'm not going to pass judgment on the woman 
I think I'll pass judgment on the judges. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. What a stunning turn of events. None of those Bible students that were sitting there wanting to really study the Bible, none of those people that went to class that day, they certainly did not expect what they happened to happen. As a matter of fact, I, there's a powerful scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And, and I don't know if you remember this scene or not, but it's so powerful, I, I wanted to show it to you. Watch this. All of a sudden, truth has forth these self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical judges to see not just the reality of her sin, but for the first time, they see the reality of their sin. They see it's not just her that needs judgment, it's them that needs judgment. Because see, truth always reminds you about two things concerning our own moral failures. Number one, nobody's without sin. The pastor's not without sin. The pope's not without sin. The preacher's not without sin. The pastor's not without sin. Nobody's without sin. Number two, except for the grace of God, we would always be in the other person's place. You know, there's an old saying you may remember that we've said, and it really is true. When you point a finger at someone, you got three pointing back at you. So true. Nobody's without sin. And except for the grace of God, you would be in the other person's place. Now, the story doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, the story's just getting started. Because with truth, we see the reality of sin. But with grace, we can seek redemption for sin. With truth, we see the reality. I'm guilty, caught red-handed, no doubt about it, no defense, can't get out of the situation. However, with grace, we can seek redemption for sin. Now, Jesus has a way of clearing the field of all the opponents, and it happens again. Let's read this again. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her again. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who, were, who heard began to go away one at a time, the other ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, nobody's left. As a matter of fact, apparently even the people in the Bible class thought, I think we'll leave too. I think we better go back home too. I think we really don't belong here either. And so they, they were under conviction and they left. So all you've got enough now is Jesus and this adulterous woman. Now you think, well, she's good to go. Not yet. Because the facts still haven't changed. She has been caught. She is guilty. Her reputation is ruined. She will wear a scarlet A on her chest the rest of her life. From now on, wherever she goes out in public, heads will turn. People will point. Lips will whisper. Because it's not hearsay. It's not gossip. She's guilty. They've got the pictures. They've got the DVD. She's guilty. And everybody knows she's guilty. The Pharisees know it. The lawyers know it. Jesus knows it. She knows it. She is guilty. So I want you to picture this scene. Two different people could never have stood so close together. She's guilty, but he's guiltless. She's been caught red-handed. He's never been caught at anything. She has broken God's law. She's standing before the one that wrote that law. Now, you might say she's gone from the frying pan into the fire. And so here she is. She knows what's coming now. She's braced for this hurricane called judgment. But instead, she feels this cool breeze called grace. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then... Neither do I condemn you. By the way, you notice he calls her woman, just uh, for clarification. In that day, ladies, that was a name that was used out of respect. That was not a derogatory term. As a matter of fact, you may remember, it was the same word that he used for his mother. Today, we'd use, it, we would use the word lady. When he looked at her and he said woman, she had been called a lot of names she hadn't been called woman. And when Jesus looked at her and said to her, woman, it just blew her away because it had been a long time if anybody had ever said that to her. Now, something amazing is about to happen. Watch this. The ones that were unqualified to condemn her couldn't. The one that was qualified to condemn her didn't. And what this woman thought was going to be the worst day and probably the last day of her life actually turned out to be the best day of her life. Because in effect, there was this reverse eclipse. You know, recently we just saw an eclipse. There was this reverse eclipse, right? The darkness of her sin had been eclipsed by the light of God's love. So she looks at the hands of Jesus. Hands are empty of rocks. But one hand is full of grace, and the other hand is full of truth. Now, let's just time out right here. This was not a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
Because forgiveness is never free. <laughs> Do you understand why Jesus did not condemn this woman? He said, wait a minute. So he's just kind of letting her off? No. He's just kind of pretending it didn't happen? No. He's just kind of giving her a free pass? No. The reason why Jesus did not condemn this woman is because he was about to go to the cross and be condemned for this woman. That's why he said, you're not condemned because I'm going to be condemned for you. Because think about it. Jewish law said she was guilty of deserving death, adultery. God's law said all sin is deserving of death, which is exactly why Jesus died for all sin. Here's the thing. If you ever wonder how God reacts when you blow it and you do and we do, if you ever wonder how God reacts when we blow it, when we, you know, when we just don't get it right, when we absolutely fail, when we fall on our face, if you ever wonder how God reacts when you come to him and you fess up to your mess up, you ought to frame these words on the hall, on the wall of your heart and never forget them. Every time you come to God and you fess up to your mess up, here's what God says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, here's our problem. If this story had been written today, if a movie had been made about the story today, do you know how this story would end? Right here. It ended right here. I, you know, that, that's how our culture would end this story, right there. That's how our society would end that story, right there. I spent seven years in a seminary that taught me or tried to teach me to end every story right there there. But with Jesus, the story never ends right there. That's where we all wish the story would end. I don't condemn you. They don't condemn you. You're okay. I'm okay. God's okay. It's all good. You are free to go. That's not where the story ends. Because with truth, we see the reality of sin. With grace, we can seek the redemption of sin. But watch this. When you put the two together, with grace and truth, we will show repentance from sin. With grace and truth, we will show repentance from sin. Because the story doesn't end there. That's not the last thing Jesus says. Oh, I know you love to cut it off right there. Neither do I condemn you. But then he says this. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. See, without that last statement, the story would be incomplete. Without that last statement, it would be all grace, but no truth. Without that last statement, as a matter of fact, it would be giving grace at the expense of truth. And let me just tell you, I'm not throwing rocks, no pun intended. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm just telling you. There are a lot of churches out there, and they're not too far from some, some are not too far from us. You, if you just want all grace and no truth, they're out there. They'll tell you, I don't care what your lifestyle is. I don't care how you live your life. I don't care what you're doing right now. It's all good. God loves you. God accepts you and God affirms you just the way you are. You just live any way you want to, do anything you want to, say anything you want to, take anything you want to, be anything you want to be. It's all good. That's not us. And that's not Jesus. And that is not the Bible. You know, we've all heard the saying, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. 
That is a theologically absolutely true statement. Because I want you to see, you ready for this? This is important. The woman's sin was forgiven. It was not excused. Big difference. The woman's sin was forgiven, but it was not excused. Jesus is not just kind of winking at this sin. He's not pretending he doesn't see it. He doesn't stick his hand in the, in the, in, in the sand. The story's not teaching us you can't call wrong, wrong. It, it's not teaching us you cannot judge the sinful action of others. So listen carefully. Jesus was not saying that only sinless people can judge the actions of other people. He wasn't teaching that. Because if that were true, if only sinless people could judge other people or judge, what, judge the actions of other people, you wouldn't have justice. Because if judges today had to be perfect and sinless, you wouldn't have any judges sitting on the bench and there could be no justice. Here's what we're going to learn. The truth of the matter is, we not only have the right to condemn whatever God condemns, we have the responsibility to condemn what God condemns. We don't have just the right to do it. We have the responsibility to do it. So here's what I want you to hear. Are we to judge the thief? Absolutely not. But we're to judge his stealing. Are we to judge a liar? Absolutely not. But we are to judge his lying. Are we to judge the adulterer? Absolutely not. But we are to judge the adultery. Now, I want you to hear me carefully because you hear this all the time. Who are you to judge? I'm nobody to judge. But there's a difference between condemning the sin and judging the sinner. It's not my job to judge anybody. I don't judge anybody. It's not my job. However, I do condemn rightly the actions God condemns. So on the one hand, notice the grace in this statement because there's, there's real grace here. Listen to what he says. He doesn't say, now, if you will go and sin no more, I'll not condemn you. He didn't say that. He didn't say, if you'll guarantee me from now on, you'll never sin again, I won't condemn you. He didn't say that either. What he said in effect was, okay, I don't, now you don't. I don't, now you don't. Here's the way it works, he says. I don't condemn you now. Now you go and sin no more. That's the way it works. See, there are a lot of people today, here's the Jesus they want. They want this Jesus that says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. That's what Hollywood wants you to believe. That's what our culture wants you to believe. That's what our society wants you to believe. But that is not the Jesus of the Scripture. Because when Jesus offers grace, it's always with truth. Neither do I condemn you. That's grace. Go and leave your life of sin. That's truth. Now, there's a biblical word for leaving your life of sin. It starts with an R. We don't hear it much anymore. It's called repentance. We don't hear that word much anymore. People don't like that word. But repentance is actually the flip side of grace. Because when you turn to God and you receive his offer of grace, you've got to turn away from sin as you receive the judgment of truth. Now listen, we're living in a culture today that tells us it is wrong to call something wrong, if all of a sudden, wait, one day our culture decides it's no longer wrong. 
So if I call something wrong that the culture says is no longer is wrong, I'm intolerant. I'm a bigot. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm prejudiced. I'm biased. Okay, we're, that's, that's what we're being told. Well, the culture says, I don't care what that book says. I don't care what God says. The culture says, if we say it's right, you say it's right. I got one thing to say about that. That's wrong. That's just wrong. If you refuse to condemn what God condemns, you're not being loving or graceful. I'm going to say that again. If you refuse to condemn what God condemns, you're neither be loving nor graceful. It is cowardly. Jesus gives us a voice to speak both grace and truth. And if we don't use our voice for both, we lose our voice for either. I'm to speak grace. I'm to speak truth. I've said this at the beginning. I'm going to say it at the end of this series. I want us to be known as a church. Listen, I want our church to be known not for what we are against, but what we are for. I want to make that real plain. I want to be known for what we are for more than what we are against. But here's the truth. Anytime you stand for something, you automatically have to stand against something else. You don't, get to, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. If you stand for something, you stand against something else. So if you want to stand for what the culture says is right, regardless of what God says, then you stand against what God says, even if God says it. That's just the way it works. Now, we don't know this woman's name. We don't. But I'm glad we know her story. Because there's not a story anywhere in the Bible that gives the balance of grace and truth and how Jesus was filled with both better than this story. I said this and I'm gonna say it again. What is so sad is that so many unbelievers out there only know two kinds of believers. Too many unbelievers out there only know two kinds of believers. They know believers who speak truth without grace. And I've been guilty of doing that at times. And then they know believers who are super graceful, but they never share truth. What we need to be Listen, and what we will be if we're full of Jesus is someone who in a spirit of grace will always love other people enough to tell the truth. That's when you're full of grace and that's when you're full of truth. So there's the balance. There's grace and there's truth. There's redemption, there's repentance. There is I forgive your sin, but there's also now you forsake your sin. So let's get real personal. Let, let's, let's, let's get real practical. Ask yourself a question. Is there any area of your life where Jesus, you know, would say to you, I don't condemn you, but you need to give this up. So You're living with someone that you're not married to. What would Jesus tell you? Or you're sleeping with someone who's married to someone else. What would Jesus tell you? Or you're absolutely, completely unfaithful with your finances when it comes to God. What would Jesus tell you? You have bitterness towards someone and anger, and you've never gotten rid of it. What would Jesus tell you? Are you bad about gossiping and causing trouble or cutting other people down, and you're just hypercritical all the time? What would Jesus tell you? 
Or you're all grace but no truth. What would Jesus tell you? Or you're all truth and no grace. What would Jesus tell you? See, one of the things I see more and more as a pastor, I'm just being honest, we're living more and more in a day when people will come and they'll sit and they'll listen as long as you just give them grace. They'll hear truth. We can't do that. I can't do that. We won't do that. So I'm asking all of us, I've had to ask myself this question, Lord, what, what is it you would say to me? Okay, I, I forgive you, but you need to forsake this. One of the things I had to give up many, many years ago, again, just being transparent and confess, just open, ministerial jealousy, because it's rampant out there. You know, I finally had to realize, just like the old-time gunslingers used to, used to find out, no matter how fast you are, somebody's always faster. No matter how big you are, somebody's always bigger. No matter how much money your church is, 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 is receiving, somebody else got a bigger budget. I just finally had to realize, you know what? God, you just called me to be me. You called me to be here. And I'm going to love my church. I'm not worried about I'm really not. I want to reach as many people as I can. But I just gave all that up. So there, I don't know what it is in your life. I'm just simply telling you, this series will do you no good if you don't listen to what this last part, the way we wound this thing up. What has God said to you right now? What is God saying to some of you in here right now? What would be that thing that Jesus would say to you? Okay, I don't condemn you. I forgive you. But give this up. So, Back to Mrs. Hall. Over about 20 years after I graduated from high school, this is 20 years after I graduated from high school, I was pastor in former church. And I was preaching on repentance. And I just hate it when God preaches to me. I just hate it. But he preached to me. So I sat down and I wrote a letter to Mrs. Hall. I looked up her address. Hadn't talked to her. Hadn't seen her over 20 years. Wrote her a letter. And in that letter, I, I told her what I'd done. I told her how it had crushed me, how I'd begged God to forgive me. I told her how I'd never, ever cheated before. From that point all the way through college and seminary, I never cheated again. And I mailed the letter to her. And I'll be honest with you, I was hoping either A, the post office would mess up and it wouldn't get to her, or B, she just wouldn't write me back. But about a week later, I get a letter from Mrs. Hall. I'm telling you, I was shaking like a leaf. And I opened up the letter, and this is what she said. I'm so glad to see the reality of the grace of Jesus in your life. Isn't it wonderful to be freed by the truth? Yes, it is. Let's pray together.